Hello, and welcome to Sites and Sirens Back to Basic Podcast. My name is Dr. Christopher Sites. I'm an emergency physician, and I'm here with my brother, Jason Sites, who is a firefighter, paramedic, and RN. Together, we run Sites and Sirens, an emergency preparedness training company. Sites and Sirens is a National American Heart Association training center and EMS training company that specializes in NREMT exam prep. Our Back to Basics podcast was created to make what are sometimes complex medical topics easy to understand and retain for students of emergency care. Please like and follow us on your favorite podcast streaming service, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for joining us. So after two visits from the HOA and one trip to the urgent care, my whole romantic escapade had just gone off the rails completely. I mean, I think you could have assumed that you can't make your own caviar. Uh, the YouTube video seemed pretty clear. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's get started today. So today's episode, we're talking about pulmonary embolism. All right. Mm-hmm. So that's what the topic is going to be today. Um, but we're going to talk about how, as a part of this case, that you this is another case that you saw. Yeah, yeah. Another. And this is something that, like I said, I, we kind of give it away, right? It's a pulmonary embolism, but it didn't present the way you suspect it to present. Right. And I think some of that was maybe an adjustment of my attitude out there that needed to be had. This was a very humbling experience for me. I think it kind of sobered me up out there a little bit. Okay. Um, and some of it was just, it was just a weird case. And it's worth talking about. I think pulmonary embolism is something that's poorly understood in, in EMS because they, we think that there's a lot that we just don't, we can't do anything about it sort of thing. So I'd like to just kind of expand on that. Maybe talk a little bit about like what the hospital does and what sort of, um, presentations we would see in the field, what can clue us in and how we can kind of help you guys out in the hospital getting ready for handling a situation like that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us how, how did this go? So this was a few years back. Um, and it was on a holiday and we were, we got dispatched for basically a woman, uh, panicked and in EMS, sometimes you develop jaded attitudes a little bit towards frustrating calls. Sure. And this was certainly one of those frustrating calls. And this will always stick with me because of how serious it ended up turning out. But we pulled up to a Burger King and at this Burger King, there was a very large woman and she was absolutely panicked, like throwing her arms up, screaming at the top of her lungs. Um, and it was very frustrating because we couldn't get her name. We couldn't get information from her. She was just screaming. She was going through her car. Her car was like a hoarder car. She was like ripping, ripping through her car. I'm getting frustrated. I'm starting to raise my voice a little bit more than I should. You know, hey, come on. We're trying to help you out, you know. So immediately my my partner and I have kind of pegged this as a probably just an anxiety attack. It's a, It's nothing, right? This is a nothing call. So you're feeling like this. So... So what I'm hearing is that you're saying you think this person is just being very dramatic. Correct. So typically, I I think this is and you're probably going to speak on this a little bit, but I think this is sometimes we do this in medicine in general where we if we can't get information, I think we get frustrated as as people that like we feel like like the patient's not for whatever reason, like not giving it to us on purpose, like withholding it. And that's not always the case. I mean, like when these patients are in severe situations or truly in, you know, in fear, that sort of thing. I mean, it, it's hard to sometimes get that assessment piece, but it sounds like you're, you're, th- you're, you're pulling up thinking like, man, this lady is just being too dramatic. She's, she's being difficult. Well, and we're in a field where we have to almost design our personality around like controlling our emotions and like handling severe situations. This woman didn't sign up for that, you know, and, and we come into call sometimes assuming you get how my system works. And w- w- this is the part of the call where you tell me this information and they don't know that. And they're emotions are high. And though I've learned to control mine, maybe they haven't learned to control theirs. And that's not how they would normally sure. respond. So, but what we see what we, we think is a, is a psych issue because she's screaming and throwing her hands up and there doesn't appear to be anything wrong. 
when we get her on the stretcher, she jumps up. She keeps jumping up off the stretcher and, and, and being what we thought was dramatic. And finally, we belted her down. And I I hook her up to some vitals. We get some vital signs. And she's she's not hypo or hypertensive. She's she's normal tensive. She's got... Blood pressure's normal. Blood pressure's good, yep. Uh, she's uh, Her pulse rate is a little elevated, but she's anxious. And uh, no complaints that we can get of. She just, she's panicking. She even said she has a history of anxiety attacks. I said, do you get anxiety? And she goes, oh yeah, I get anxiety. So and not to say that, like I said, anxiety and panic attacks is like a psych issue. You're more saying that in terms of, like sometimes people have a stigma about that. I don't want, I don't want the listeners sure. to think oh, that there's like a stigma around that. So more what you're saying is that when we define things in medicine as like a medical issue or a psychiatric issue, we're not saying someone's crazy. We're saying that it is not, there's not a medical reason behind how they're feeling. It's, it's, it's real how they're feeling. They're having these, this panic attack is very serious to them, but you're, you're not seeing in this case, a medical reason behind what she's feeling or, or an emergency medical situation sure. okay. because there's plenty of conditions out there that are, you know, people can't help. It's a medical condition still, but mm-hmm. it's something that's outside of my expertise because it's dealing with brain chemistry and things sure. like that. So, so she's acting like there's an emergency, but you're not as a clinician at this point seeing anything that says, yes, there's a, a true medical emergency that you need to act on immediately exactly. at this point. Exactly. Okay. Her SpO2, so her oxygen saturation, 98%. Okay. wave looks great. Everything looks fine. So what do I do? Well, of course, I'm, I'm a little frustrated. I start telling her that everything's fine. And it starts very compassionate. Hey, everything's fine. You're going to be okay. As she continues calm, to, to calm de- her a little bit. Yeah, kind of, in my mind, like deny that fact and say, no, something is wrong and jumping up and me then getting frustrated. Oh, you're, you're poking at my professionalism. You're telling me I don't know what I'm talking about, you know. So I end up. I'm pointing at this screen, showing her the 98% and explaining to her what it means. Is that a good thing to do in the field? Absolutely. You should be educating your patients. That's awesome. I'm saying, hey, this means that your oxygenation is fine. Now, my tone of voice is probably saying this means you're bullshitting me. Okay. All right. And that's that's not appropriate, right? I, I, I needed some correction there. And I very much learned it from this call. I can tell you that much. So- I'm pointing, I'm going, look, there's nothing wrong with you. Everything's fine. You're just having an anxiety attack. You need to calm down. And she keeps unbelting her top strap and leaning up. I don't recognize that at the time because of a saturation as potential tripoding. So when someone tripods and they're, if you take it back to basics, when someone is in respiratory distress or having trouble catching their breath, they, uh, they put their hands on their knees sometimes and they, they lean forward and they, they create a tripod in order to assist them in breathing. In my mind, it doesn't make sense. Why would she be tripoding if she's standing fine? She has good oxygen saturation. So, so maybe treating the monitor a little bit more than the patient in this right, case. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. So she, because again, I think that this is just your, this is just your anxiety getting the best of you. your emotions are getting the best of you and you're, you know, making a scene, which is mm-hmm. not a good assumption to, to make. Sure, right. Yeah. And do we bump into that sometimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we still need to treat these patients. We still need to treat them with respect. And we'll get into that. So anyway, my my partner is teching the call. He's the lead medic. I'm the driver. And he uh, he eventually is like, you know what? Screw it. Let's just go. We'll go lights and sirens because she's because the way she's acting, which was a good cue. I mean, it's a good that we made that decision, because if we didn't, I would probably have immense guilt about this call. We jump in, we go lights and sirens. He's calling and saying we might potentially need security. We're, like she, she's having, we're having trouble keeping her on the stretcher. She's panicked. Everything's fine though. All her vitals are stable. And 
I will say we, we did rule things out. There was no chest pain. She complained of no back pain. She complained of no pain at all. She complained of, she didn't say she was having trouble breathing. She said she felt panicked. I was going to say, did she, what was her, did, it sounds like it was difficult to get any information from her, but what was her chief complaint? What was her how did she? Right. And that was difficult for us okay. to determine as well. And from what we could tell, all your vitals are stable. You don't, your complaint is you're panicked. So we're kind of, again, leaning down that anxiety attack route, mm-hmm. which can be very scary things, you know. Um, but we're frustrated. We get to the hospital. There's a set of double doors and then another set of double doors. You type a code in one, you type a code in the other, and that gets you into the, into the ER at this hospital. At the first set of double doors, we typed in the code. Oh, you know what? I forgot to say on the way, I hear my partner shout, Jason, she's unresponsive now. And my immediate, this is where I, again, needed some correction. I had a bad attitude at the time. It had been a long, uh, a long week, but I said, well, take her hand and, and drop it and see if it hits her face or not. Because if it hits her face, then she's not faking. But I would bet that she'll move her hand out of the way of the face. This is a, we call it the drop test. It's a little, little out there, a little but barbaric. It's a little but barbaric, it's a, but it's to see if they're if they're you know not faking necessarily, but but unfortunately some people moving away from the impulse. And right? unfortunately, we do run into people in our field that they do fake things and they do. And we yeah, we do need to have some ways of trying of to verify. figure out. And, yeah. and I I think that that's sometimes gentler than doing like a painful response sternal rub. Mm-hmm. Like some people go in for the sternal rub and they they go more aggressive than they yeah, need to. So this was just an easy way to see. I expected her to just kind of move her hand out of the way when it comes down towards her face, but he yells back. Well, she just slapped herself in the face. Okay. And my initial, I almost said the words, we'll do it again. It doesn't sound right. Right. So then I'm thinking like, uh oh, something, something's going on that we're not putting together. So now you're right? starting to cue in like, maybe I've been chalking yeah, this maybe, up to something. Maybe the last things that I just said to this woman was that her emergency wasn't an emergency that mm-hmm. she should calm down and that her mind was playing tricks on her. Cause I actually used those words oh, and geez. I feel terrible about it. Sure. So we hit the front doors, the, the first set of double doors and all of a sudden she's not breathing. And we hit the second set of double doors and all of a sudden she doesn't have a pulse. Now I'm in the ER, in the triage room, and there's doctors looking at me going, what's going on? And I have to tell them, I have no idea, but she's dead now. She's, she she right? just died. Wow. I don't know what to do. And I look like the medic who not even doing CPR as I roll into, an, into the hospital, right? right? So it turns out, and we'll go into more depth about this, but it turns out that she um, had a PE, a pulmonary embolism in her lungs, which is a fast onset, you know, quick emergency that, um, is life-threatening. And unfortunately in this case, she didn't make it. And it was something that my partner and I sat down about and talked over, over and over and over again. And really was a humbling experience, both because that assumption you get on scene and making assumptions is something that we have to do. We have to get that under control. You know, I say that we're experts at controlling our emotions, but was I really controlling mine? If I'm, if I'm making assumptions as I step out of the ambulance and then not not seeing the bigger picture, taking a step back and looking at potential. We always need to be saying, okay, maybe it seems like this is bull. Maybe it seems like this patient's faking, but if they aren't, how are they, or if they think that they are, maybe they think something's going on. That's not, how how would I feel in that position? How would I expect emergency medicine to, to uh, treat me? So, well, it's cool that you changed. It's cool that you and your partner were able to reflect back on that and realize like, yeah, you know what? Like we made some mistakes. We missed some things. And we'll talk about like, if there's anything you could have changed other than your demeanor and your caring yeah. attitude and that sort of thing. But, um, one thing I, cause I, this is not abnormal. I mean, that this happens a lot. Um, I mean, hopefully not as much as, as, as it could, but again, I think that sometimes we do make some assumptions 
it's never wrong. And this is my opinion. This is kind of the, the, the default I try to, I try to do. And I think you do that too, is that it's never wrong to assume it's something worse. It's when we assume that it's not something <laughs> or it's nothing at all. Right. I mean, and, and this is like the worst case scenario, right? Like yeah. you made an assumption that was maybe not incorrect with the data that you had, but then like the worst thing happened. I mean, the patient right. died, right? I mean, and, and there, you didn't cause that to happen and they didn't, you know, there's, we'll talk about, there's nothing really you could have done before you got to those doors to prevent her heart from stopping. There really, there really isn't. We'll talk about why, but I will say too, like, I thank God all the time that we went lights and sirens on that call, that we at least had the intuition to go lights and sirens. Cause had I had, had I had the ability to get there faster and had not, then it was on me, you know, and we didn't dilly dally on scene because she was so panicked and and we moved there. So afterwards, you know, when this, whenever this holiday comes, I I won't say what holiday it is because I don't want to give out any information about the call, but whenever this holiday comes back up, this partner and I, we sit down again and kind of go over it and say like, Hey, like, let's remember that. Let's remember that, you know, you're right. The, the issue was an attitude issue. We needed to adjust our attitudes. And I think we really grew from it. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's not really a whole lot besides changing my attitude and maybe my treatment, uh, my compassion towards the patient that we would have been able to change to affect the outcome. Cool. So let's take it back to basics right in the beginning here and talk about what is a pulmonary embolism. Right. So there's this distinction I want to make, uh, whether you're in EMS or not in EMS. Uh, there's a there's a distinction between um, a thrombus and an embolism. And I think that it was like farther along in my medical training where I really made this distinction. And it's just a good distinction to make. So a thrombus is a blood clot. Okay, that's the, that is the medical term for a blood clot, a thrombus. So you'll hear people say they had a DVT. That stands for a deep vein thrombosis or thrombus. So a deep vein clot, blood clot. Usually that happens in the legs, usually in the lower legs. Um, because the circulation isn't moving as good. It's like a post-surgery, things like right, that. Right? Yeah. Like I had surgery. I'm not mobile. My circulation isn't going well. So now I'm at risk for a DVT, a deep vein right, thrombosis. Exactly. We, we need to make sure we're moving enough that, that we don't have the blood sit, clot up, and cr- create oxygenation issues. Exactly right. So a deep vein thrombosis is actually probably one of the most um, common reasons for someone to develop a pulmonary embolism. So, But again, let's define. So thrombus is a blood clot. And I, and I reference DVT, you can get blood clots in lots of other areas, thrombuses in lots of other areas, but the DVT is the one that we all know we think about, even if we're not in medicine, we've heard that before, a deep vein thrombosis, so a deep vein clot. An embolism is any foreign object in the circulation that lodges in a vessel and stops blood flow any foreign object. So a lot of times we assume that an embolism is a blood clot. And it can be right a blood clot if it, you know if a blood clot breaks off from the vessel that it's stick, stuck on and travels and then gets somewhere like in the lungs and well you know we'll talk about that and all of a sudden when it breaks off and starts traveling now it's called an embolism so a blood clot a thrombus can be an embolism there are other things though that can be emboli or embolisms right so you can have air embolisms so literally I mean like you and I scuba dive together so there's that chain part of the reason that we you know decompress at 15 feet before we surface is that 
as we develop gas in our system that those gas bubbles can extend, there's a risk that if we extend them too quickly, they can lodge in the vessels or travel in the vessels and, and we could have a stroke or we could have a cardiac arrest or something like that. So that's another form of embolism, an air embolism. And that's why you, when you're scuba diving, it's why you need to come up slow. If you ever come up too fast, that gas expands, can create an embolism and right. in the right place yeah. could kill you. Another thing that is a, a um, uncommon cause of embolism is breaking off of plaques. So as we, you know, if we've got, you know, high, hyper, hypertension, high blood pressure issues, if we eat a lot of fatty foods, we develop plaque in our vessels, this like cholesterol and stuff that builds up pieces of those plaques can break off and they can travel when they break up and travel. They're an embolism. Okay. Well, and then so, if they get further down the circulation to a smaller spot, they could potentially block off that entire vessel, right? As the circulation. Right and branches into smaller and smaller vessels. You've got a, a piece of plaque that's in a big vessel and it gets down into one of the smaller vessels. Uh, oh, now we run into an issue where we're, again, blocking off oxygenation exactly. because of blood flow. And a lot of times strokes are caused from that, right? So you've got plaque build up in your carotid arteries. A piece breaks off, goes to a smaller vessel in your brain, and all of a sudden you have lack of oxygen to your brain. So again, today we're talking about pulmonary embolism, but I want to make that distinction as we bring things back to basics. A thrombus is a blood clot. An embolism is any foreign object that travels in black. Now, a lot of times it is a blood clot, but there is a distinction that we need to make there. So we could we could simplify this and, and say that a a thrombus is a type of embolism. Sure. Yeah, it can be a type of embolism if it breaks off and travels. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what a pulmonary embolism typically is. So you have a, 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 a clot somewhere in the, you know, usually a clot, a thrombus somewhere, maybe it's in the lower legs, you know, it can be anywhere in the, in the body and it breaks off and it travels to the lungs and gets stuck in one of the vessels that feeds the lung. And all of a sudden the lung tissue itself is no longer getting oxygen, right? So this sounds a lot like another emergency that we're very familiar with, right? It, it sounds a lot like a heart attack in the sense that we have a vessel that's blocked off. We have ischemia of tissue and eventually death of tissue. And now that tissue cannot be, um, it, it can't grow back. It's not, it's non-functional, right? right? So I think sometimes as providers, we get real caught up with like strokes in the brain. You know, that's a blockage of tissue or a, a blockage of oxygen to the tissue. And we got heart attacks in the heart. It's easy to forget that the lungs need perfusion themselves, right? Because what do the lungs do? Well, they bring in oxygen. So we kind of think like, well, the oxygen's already in there. It's good to go. But no, the tissue needs to be innervated with vessels as well. So mm -hmm. if that tissue gets blocked off, well, guess what tissue's dying? The lung tissue's dying. And now it's impacting our way to bring in more oxygen and perfuse everything else. Right, exactly. And if that clot is large enough and it blocks off I mean, there's two things you need to be able to live, right? You need oxygen. Your body needs to get oxygen and it needs blood flow. So if we block off that blood flow and prevent oxygen from getting from our lungs, our oxygen can't now come into the body because the lungs, which are, that's their job, can't do that. And now all of a sudden the body can't function, right? So that would be why a pulmonary embolism, and it sounds like probably in this case, then led to a cardiac arrest that quickly. True. The question is, though, then, like, why, what would have been signs or symptoms of that? So what are, what are uh, if you could share with us, what yeah. are typical signs and symptoms of pulmonary embolism? And then what did you see in this case, now that you look back, that yeah. you saw? and But also, like, what wasn't seen in this case? Because this wasn't a typical presentation of a pulmonary right, embolism. Right. So what would be so, the typical? So we got to think about the pathology of it, right? We have, we have a block of blood flow to our lungs. Like you said, that affects our, our 
our lungs, our lungs ability to do its job. So typically you're going to see things like shortness of breath, not getting oxygen to my body. So what's going on? Well, I'll make up for it. We'll start breathing even faster. Well, you know, so you, you get that, you get panic. Absolutely. And yeah. that was in this case, right. But panic, you get panic from all kinds of emergencies. Yeah. Typically, you'll feel um, a back or chest pain with it. Usually, you can have like a back or chest pain from that uh, lack of tissue. In the same way that with with chest pain that you'd have from a heart attack, from that ischemia of tissue, the ischemia of the lung tissue, you can feel in your back. So having no complaints of back pain was was very surprising in this case because it's a pretty common symptom mm -hmm. when it comes to a PE. And then again, tripoding, you know, respiratory like symptoms. Now, because the blood flow is is locked off and we're getting less oxygen, I would have also expected to have seen a low O2 sat. I wouldn't have seen a 98%. That didn't make sense to me. So right. this either progressed very quickly um, where I wasn't seeing the after effects of, of the condition itself until it got very, very bad. Um, or it hadn't happened until we were literally pulling into the hospital. And one thing we I think we forget is that 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 oxygen level when we take someone's pulse ox when we put that little monitor on their finger and we get that you know that level that um that lags sometimes so sometimes like even with, when i'm intubating someone in the emergency department i can i can they cannot be breathing and i can be attempting an intubation for almost a good minute or so before you actually see that monitor telling you that their oxygen is dropping now has their oxygen been dropping that whole time well yeah they haven't been breathing right but it lags well where are we looking we're looking in the finger right we're right. looking way over here in the finger and we're looking at the blood that's right there How's the oxygen doing with that? But we're dealing with the lungs where it right. first comes in. So it makes sense that there'd right. be a little bit of a lag before we find out, you know, how that's truly circulating well. Sure. The other thing we see a lot of times, and we see this in when any, anyone is in pain or that kind of thing, but another thing we'll see is when the body is trying to compensate because the oxygen's, they're not getting lung oxygen, is the heart rate will go up. And right. you said this patient was a little bit tachycardic. Now, if she was in a panic attack, should she be tachycardic? Sure. If she was any kind of pain, would you see her heart rate go up? Yeah. Um, but but looking back, it's like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, that may have been a sign too. Sure. It sounds to me, and, and, and tell me if you think, if you disagree with this, it sounds to me that in this case, this was a massive, large blood clot that just occurred immediately. And that's the other thing with pulmonary embolisms that usually the shortness of breath, the chest pain, it happens all of a sudden. It's not a gradual thing. It's all, right. all of a sudden people are like, whoa, what happened? Which sounds like it happened to her. And it must've been large enough that it blocked off enough that she, before you even saw the oxygen levels dropping on the monitor, she couldn't breathe. She was done. Yeah. yeah. Her, her lung, her, she couldn't breathe anymore. So, so, and that goes back to like, is there anything you could have done differently in this case? So what in, I would argue that no, other than like I said, maybe, sure. maybe more compassion and, and that sort yes, of thing. Right. Exactly. Obviously. Right. Which, you know, you, you've even stated yourself, but what would be your treatment in the field? Let's say this was a typical presentation. She had back pain. She had chest pain, sudden onset. Her, her oxygen levels were low. She was having shortness of breath. You're like, you know what this is? And she's like, she's like, I have a blood clot in my leg. I mean, like, oh, you have everything, <laughs> sure. you know, it's a, you know, it's a pulmonary sure. embolism in the field. What do you do? Well, unfortunately, we can't do a whole lot. What right. we can do is we can only basically affect the oxygen that's going in. So if she goes um, apneic, if she stops breathing, I can breathe for her. You know, if she's breathing too fast, I can try to coach her and slow down her breathing with a BVM or a bag valve mask. If she's breathing too slow, I can pick her breathing up with a bag valve mask and assist her. It, that always helps if they're unresponsive because then you can just breathe for them. But sometimes you have to coach patients through to speed their breathing up or slow their breathing down to normal limits. Um, 
but we would flow oxygen, right? We'd give them oxygen. We'd give them as much oxygen as we could. Unfortunately, that great brand new 100% oxygen is going into the lungs where there is a clot. And I can't do anything about that clot right now. There's no medication right. that I can give in the field safely that's going to bust a clot or take care of an embolus. Sure. And I think that's, that's, that's the answer, right? So again, back to basics, what's the, what's the most important thing, even in this patient, let's say you knew she had a pulmonary embolism, but her oxygen levels weren't low. You'd still give her oxygen, right? We're going to try to give as much oxygen. So the lung tissue that is working, we want to make sure that that has as much oxygen as it possibly can to circulate through the body. Since there's a part of the lung or maybe a whole lung or a big part of the lung that is not getting to exchange that oxygen. It doesn't, right. it doesn't have no use for it. So we're trying to give everything we can to the parts of the lung that do it. So oxygen, oxygenation is the most important thing. I would also say that recognition and good assessment is really important here, Absolutely. right? Like I say, thank God we decided to go lights and sirens. Thank God we decided to move quickly, but we did not recognize that this was a PE. Yeah, we yeah. accidentally stumbled into doing all the correct things that we needed to do, but being able to recognize the signs and symptoms, you know, the next, now when I show up on things that even when they are anxiety attacks, you better believe I'm asking about back pain. I'm yeah. really looking for tripod and I'm really looking for their respiratory rate. Is their pulse elevated because of the anxiety? Is it elevated? because of this. I take it a lot more serious because I learned a lot from this call, right? Early recognition is important because we don't have much time. They progress so quickly. We got to get them to the hospital quick so that they can get clot busting medication. And that's, a, that's the thing, right? So you were saying like, you don't have anything in the field that you can do, but I actually do. So in the emergency department, I actually do have some medications at my ex, uh, expo exposure, exposal. Disposal is what disposal. You're for, That's yeah. what I'm looking for. Thank you. So I have some medications at my disposal that allow me to break up that clot as, as best I can with medications. There's even surgical interventions where they can go in and pull it out. Obviously, that needs an operating room, but all that doesn't take place unless you get the patient to me, right? right. So again, I think we sometimes... Another takeaway, I think, is that sometimes we don't realize in the field and in EMS that that early recognition is so important Oh yeah. that obviously like getting there fast, like driving fast, that's important, but being able to even call me on the, on the phone and say, Hey, Dr. Seitz, I've got this patient X, Y, Z is happening. I think this is a pulmonary embolism that gives me, first of all, the thought in my head so that I can diagnose this. If you never think of something, you'll never diagnose it, right? right. If it's not on your radar. You're not going to diagnose this, uh, as you know, <laughs> just, I'm just kidding. No. So, um, but again, like it, it gets me, I can start utilizing, I can start getting resources ready. I can start getting that medication drawn up and things like that. So, those are the big, I think, you know, takeaways from this case, if you right. agree with me, is that one, you know, what is a pulmonary embolism? How does it present? What the initial treatments are, right? Which is in the field, oxygenation. There are medications that we can give in the hospital that allow me to break that clot up. Hopefully it doesn't hey, always can work. Can you speak but. to that a little bit? It's my understanding that TPA or some sort of at a place is what mm -hmm. would be used in the, in the ER to try to bust that clot, right? Like a clot dissolving medication. Sure. So yeah, Altaplace is the medication. TPA is like kind of like the, the, I guess maybe like a it's brand a name kind of, yeah, yeah. Like I think we're trying to get away from, cause there's different types of Altaplace, not just TPA anymore. Right. So Altaplace is the name of the medication. And yeah, what it, it literally goes, you know, it literally like goes through the blood and not, just thins the blood out. It, it attacks that platelet plug that, you know, that, that clot itself and breaks it down. Now, like now, you mentioned earlier, there's other ways that we can get embolisms though. So like, mm -hmm. let's say she got a PE from an air embolism because she was scuba diving. What would we do about that? Is there anything we can do about that? So How there, do we get an air bubble out of her? Right. So that actually we would do, we would decompress her. So we would basically put her in a hyperbaric chamber and like 
basically um, simulate bringing her down to depth right. or bringing her down to, to, to shrink that shrink gas. But again, like, like an Alta place would do nothing for that. An Alta place is for the blood clot, which is why I made that distinction in the beginning. There's thrombus and then there's embolism. So there are cases of embolisms. They're, they're, they're less common than thrombus that Alta place would do nothing for. Right. I mean, there's just, I can't, I can break up clots. I can't break up an air bubble, an air with, bubble. With Alta place, right. Sure. Yeah. So how, how in the field, is there a way in the field that we can maybe distinguish besides getting background? Like, obviously, if she was just scuba diving, maybe I'm thinking more of an air embolism. She was a, a large woman that had a plethora of medical history issues. Sure. So that might make me start to think down the line of, OK, well, she is a candidate for clots um, mm-hmm. and, and for plaques and things like that. So it makes us think that. But is there any other assessment that we can do out there that might make us think towards other types of thrombus right. or and, just and no, I can? mean, the thing is, is that that. And you spoke to this already, that history and that really gathering information is that key part, you know, like knowing that she scuba dived would be, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> sure. like if she had a, you know, a recent, you know, fracture her leg in her femur, maybe we're thinking that there could be a fat globule that has become, like, there's, there's different things, but it's all going to come down to history. They're all going to present the same. So again, having that high index of suspicion, you know, having it on your radar, taking you know, patients complaints seriously and making sure that like I said, kind of speaking back to that compassion piece. And then obviously like that early recognition and transport that, that get that information gathering is so critically important, not just for you in the field, but to then relay to that to me in the emergency department. When I've said this before, I say this in our, in our program, I have said this on, um, at, uh, at events and, and IC conferences and things like that. But I think sometimes as paramedics, we get really frustrated when we hear like, we can't do anything about that. And we can't do anything about the pathophysiology of what an air embolism is doing, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, pulmonary embolism is doing, right? I can't bust that clot. I can't decompress them. All I can do is give oxygen. Sometimes paramedics go the wrong way with that, right? They think, well, then I might as well just, it's just, I'm just a taxi driver. I'm just an Uber driver. I just take them to the hospital. So it doesn't matter. I don't need to know information about this or think deeper, but you do, you need to be able to have that assessment because I got to get you ready, right? If I can come to you and say, Hey, Chris, listen, she was just scuba diving right? Right, or, yeah, right. or Hey, she's, she's a big lady. You know, she, she just had surgery. You know, she's at risk for DVTs. This is how she's presenting. I'm sort of thinking that maybe it's a PE and it might be the type of PE that we can do something about. Right. Mm-hmm. If I can put that thought in your head and paramedics get discouraged too, because sometimes the doctors go another way with it too, or sometimes they don't want to hear your opinion, but your job is to do a good assessment and then present them with that information. And then they make the decisions from there. Never be ashamed of yourself for coming up with a good assessment and, and saying, here, here's as much information as I can give to you. Cause that's what we are. We're, yeah. we're story takers out there. It's completely vital to be vigilant in your assessment and make sure that you can get as much information as possible. That's awesome. And I think to like, as, as we sum up here, another message I'll give to people who are not in medicine, who are listening to this, who are not in medicine, who are not in EMS, maybe something that would have been super helpful in this case would have been a family member or the patient herself being able that information is so important. So if, you know, if, if you, if you are in an emergency or have a family member in an emergency, giving EMS, giving the physicians information is so vitally important. Like we, we can go so far with data and information that if we don't have, it takes a lot longer to get to where we're going. Right. So I would encourage anybody like recognize that piece. Medicine is an art as much as 
as it is a science, I mean, we we all need to work together from patient to doctor to EMS to nurse to I mean, everybody needs to be working together for the common good of the patient that that's there. And I think gathering that information and, and giving that information is, is super important. I agree. So cool. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening. We uh, appreciate you uh, uh, taking the time. If you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, please uh, feel free to uh, shoot us an email at training at sightsandsirens.com. Visit us on the web at www.sightsandsirens.com. We ask that you please download and like and share and uh, give us some comments and feedback on any, uh, any of your common podcast streaming services. We hope you guys have a great week and we'll see you soon. Stay sweet. <laughs> hey guys, hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're an EMT or medic student or an advanced EMT student or an instructor of those students, we have a program just for you. With Sights and Sirens NREMT prep program, you get video lectures over 15 hours of really vetted, great content to help you through your program and help you prepare for the test. Check it out at www.sightsandsirens.com. <laughs>